0: off. Break a leg.
1: All right. I see folks filling into the room. We'll go ahead and get started here uh, right at the top of the hour uh, as people fill into the room. So thanks everybody for joining us. All right, it is the top of the hour. And thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, My name is Jamil I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. Uh, You are here with us at NATSEC Nightcap, where we are excited to have today Elliot Abrams, Special Representative Elliot Abrams, uh, the US Special Representative for Iran and Venezuela at the State Department. Uh, Elliot has a long career in the government, having served in the George W. Bush administration, the Reagan administration, as well as currently, and he served in a variety of senior national security roles across all his administrations. So thank you so much uh, for being with us today, Special Representative Abrams, and uh, I think we'll just get right off to the races, if that's all right with you.
0: It is. Good to see you, Jumiel. Wonderful.
1: Well, look, uh, I mean, Iran is back in the news in a big way in just the last few days uh, or last week or so. We've seen the mysterious killing of an Iranian nuclear scientist the head of their nuclear program. Uh, The threat of retaliation for the supreme leader, uh, the Nimitz, is back in the Arabian Gulf. Uh, There's claims that uh, Israeli leadership uh, has been seeking U.S. and Saudi support for a potential preemptive strike on Iran. I mean, things are getting hot. And maybe not as, not even as hot as they've been since our strike, uh, killing the well-deserved strike, killing Qasem Soleimani, uh, the head of the RGC Cooks Force back in January. Should we be worried about these rising tensions? Is there a real possibility of a U.S. Uh, or Israeli strike on Iran in the near future and, and a potential conflagration as a result?
0: Um, if I had to give a one-word answer, I'd say no. <clears throat> I think a lot of what I, what I read in the newspapers. Uh, really makes me smile because it, you know, it strikes me as an effort to sell papers. Mm. Um, You know, prior to the election, you had a lot of stories saying, you just wait, Donald Trump is going to start a war. uh, Because the election's coming. After the election, I saw stories saying, you just wait. Now the election's over, he's going to start a war. Uh, You see people saying, "Um, you just wait. The killing of Fakhri Zadeh will result in a war. But those are the same people who said this after... The killing of Soleimani, right? Months. And what was the Iranian reaction to the killing of Soleimani? Basically, not much. Um, and you know, they continue to talk about revenge. I think uh, I'm not saying that they won't ever try it, but right. I think that um, much of what they say is directed at their internal audience, trying to say to you know their own uh, ranks of supporters, which is by, by the way not at all the majority of the people in Iran, but their supporters, you just yeah. wait, we're tough, we'll do this. Nobody will get away with these terrible things. So my, um, you know, I, 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 we know what this regime is like. Um, we know that they kill people. Right. We just got through in November, the anniversary, the commemoration of the terrible events of November, 2019, where they killed hundreds and hundreds of their own citizens to repress peaceful demonstrations. So um, there's no question that, that there can always be a spark, which is one of the reasons that we keep forces uh, in the Gulf.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I think most of what you read, uh, I would tend to discount. Nobody wants a war. Iran doesn't want a war because it knows that it would lose in a confrontation with the United States. Generally, I'd say if you go back decades, when confronted by strength, the regime tends to pull back.
1: Well, that does seem to be a part of the challenge that we have with Iran. Um, when confronted with strength, they push, they, they pull back. Deterrence works with Iran. And yet, for a long time, we haven't you know, practiced a, a, a pretty good deterrence policy with Iran. The Israelis have. Right, these others have taken action when they felt like they needed to. Uh, the US, on the other hand, has vacillated between uh a very aggressive sanctions policy, uh, which got more and more aggressive over time, uh, sort of the Obama administration walking back a lot of that, um, not just the sanctions policy, but you know, in order to get a nuclear deal, our ballistic missile policy, our views on terrorism, our views on domestic enrichment. Uh, what what's gonna happen in a new administration as it comes in the next in the next few months, in your mind? Um you know, some of the people, some of the key national security officials uh, coming in the new administration were directly involved in crafting the Iran nuclear deal the last time. How likely is it they're going to try to go back to the JCPOA? Or do you think there's a possibility they might actually take advantage of the, of the significant amount of influence and pressure uh, that you all, that the, that the administration has put on Iran, and maybe try to seek to get to something better or something different with Iran?
0: Well, it's a good question. I think uh, we have restored deterrence. I think uh, for those who didn't think the United States would do anything, then came January 3rd of this year, Soleimani. Um, <clears throat> I think that we have created an enormous amount of leverage. This maximum pressure campaign, the sanctions campaign, uh, has really had a huge effect on regime revenue. Uh, oil, oil exports are down something like 90%. Uh, there's been about a um, four fifth to 80%. Uh, decline in the value of the rial. We know that they've had to decrease the amount of money they're giving, for example, to Hezbollah. Their military budget has come down. After they got all that money in 2015 under the JCPOA, the military budget rose very significantly, about, about a third. So what will the next administration do with this leverage? I think that's the critical question. Yeah. You know, the I have said publicly before, I thought that no matter who won the election, said this in September and October, there was going to be a negotiation. Um, And Iran wants a negotiation because they are desperate to get the sanctions reduced. So the question becomes, do you basically discard the leverage and let them have all that money in exchange for just going back to the very flawed JCPOA, or do you use the leverage? to insist on a much better deal. And, you know, obviously my hope is that uh, in in the Biden administration, um, as you said, there are a number of people who were in the Obama administration. You know, my hope is that they've learned from the mistakes. I don't expect them to make speeches saying, yeah, yeah you know, we were all wrong. Uh, here's the, Here are the 27 mistakes we made. Right. But I do hope that they have... Uh, First of all, learn from mistakes. Second, five years are gone. Those sunsets are much too short. There are five and eight and 10-year sunsets, even the 15-year sunset. That's tomorrow right. when you think of the national security issues in the Middle East and you think of this Iranian regime. So that's the hope, that they don't just discard all the leverage by way of you know um, differentiating themselves from the previous administration, but rather use it because we've given them a terrific hand.
1: Right. So let's suppose they they take you up on it and they say, you know, Elliot, uh, Mr. President, thank you for all the leverage. We're super excited about it. We're going to go negotiate a better deal. One, is there anything, any such thing as a good deal with Iran, right? And if there is, what does a good deal look like in your mind?
0: Okay. There is such a thing as a better deal. You know, um, John Kerry used to say repeatedly that he had gotten the best possible deal. There was nothing, nothing else that could have been added. I can tell you from talking to American negotiators and to people in, in Europe that, you know, no one else believes that except maybe John Kerry. Right. What would a good deal look like? <clears throat> First of all, again, the sunsets are just incredibly short, and they're pulled out of thin air. That's the other thing that's very striking. Uh, five-year sunset for conventional arms, right? Where did that come from? I mean, all of these numbers obviously just pulled out of thin air. Um, did anybody consult technical experts, let's say the IAEA, and ask on a number of these questions, um, uh, what, what do you think would be the right number of years? Right. Um, first, sunsets. Second, um, the JCPOA says nothing at all about Iran's missile program, which is of, which is a huge threat to its neighbors in the Middle East, which can basically reach Europe. And if their so-called space program is allowed to continue, if they're allowed to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, eventually they'll have missiles that can hit the United States. So, um, the missile program. Secondly, their behavior in the region. They are supporting all sorts of terrorist groups. Hamas, Hezbollah, look what they're doing in Yemen. Look what they're doing in Iraq, where they support these Shia militia groups that do not report to Baghdad, they report to Tehran. That has to be part of an overall deal with Iran. I think a huge mistake was made, frankly, in allowing Iran to enrich at all. You know, right. when we do nuclear agreements, like the one, two, three, so-called one, two, three agreement we did with the United Arab Emirates. So with Jordan. Right. the gold standard. The gold standard is no enrichment. So why did we let Iran do that? So uh, uh, do they now, you know, obviously they don't want to give up any of these things. Uh, the regime doesn't. So how do you get them to do it? Pressure, pressure, pressure. And we've put the pressure on and they desperately need to get the sanctions lifted. So I think that's what the negotiation should be about. And I would say to you, so do the Europeans. And so do the, the, the regional allies and partners. And one of the worst things about the JCPOA was that our friends in the region, Israel, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, they had no role at all. They were kept in the dark. And of course, they're demanding a role and they deserve a role in any new negotiation.
1: Right. Well, you know, what do you say to people, there's sort of two arguments against the position you've just laid out, which is exactly the position that, that a lot of us in Congress and worked on the staff in Congress and the members of Congress had about this deal. Uh, sort of two claims that the Obama administration put out there, and I, and I worry that we might see again uh, from the new administration. I do think you're right that they will learn the lessons. I hope they will. Uh, by the way, for the audience, if you have questions, go ahead and put them in the Q&A box in about, about 20 minutes. We'll get to your questions too. So please add them down there. I see a few people already there. But two sort of responses to your point. One, this is about the nuclear program. The sanctions were about the nuclear program. We're lifting the nuclear sanctions. We can't get into the stuff about regional uh, support of terrorism or regional, you know, bad actions and all that stuff. That's outside this. We'll deal with that later on after we deal with the nuclear file and the and and these efforts. And so, while you might argue, well, ballistic missiles—that's part of that. So fine, we can deal with that. Although, of course the JCPOA and the follow on UN work actually made it worse on blessed missiles, not better. Um, what do you say to that argument? And then there's another one they have too, but how about that argument? Well, you know, I just don't, <laughs> I don't
0: agree. I mean, or put it a different way. We have a lot of leverage. Now if you give all the leverage away to get back to the JCPOA, then you have no leverage. How are you going to get them to agree on these critical issues? You know, just take the, um, the Gulfies, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, they don't really think that Iran is gonna drop a nuke on them partly because, you know, if the wind blows in the right direction, it'd be right back on Iran. What they're afraid of is the missile program and the support for subversion and aggression in the region. Um, I just don't believe that we should be saying uh, all we care about is nukes, and we will lift all the sanctions uh, if we can get some kind of nuclear deal. The nuclear program is a, is a medium to long run, very great danger, but there are, you know, clear and present dangers from what Iran is doing, such as the support for terrorism. So I just, um, uh, I don't think we should give up all our leverage. Unless and until we can discuss all of the terrible prob- security problems that Iranian conduct creates,
1: right? Well, the other so that's that's a fair that's a fair response. To that argument. There's the other argument is: look, our European allies are never going to go along with this, right? They haven't gone along with our efforts to keep the UN arms embargo in place. I'm interested in your thoughts on what's going to happen there and whether that's that that seems like a huge problem. Um, they're not going to go along with us keeping the pressure in place. They're already, they're already, for the last, you know, whatever year or two that we've been doing this, three years we've been doing this, they've been undermining it left and right. Um, they have no stomach for the fight, and us trying to steal their spine is not going to work. You know, we need their support, so we just got to get whatever deal we can with the rhymes. What about that?
0: I don't uh, think that's right. If you go back to 2013 to 15, the negotiation of the JCPOA, it is a fact That the French took a harder line than we did.
1: Yeah. They were. Embarrassing fact, by the way.
0: Yeah. (laughs) They were dismayed by the American led negotiating style and by the concessions we made. So there's an example. If you want to talk about the EU3, Britain, France, Germany, um, I don't think it is true uh, that they're uh, going to refuse to take the lead of the United States if we try to toughen the deal. And in fact, you've had. There was a statement by the French foreign minister as recently as I think it was last week saying that you need to do more than go back to the JCPOA. So I think there'd be not only support in the Middle East, but I think there would be support in Europe. And I want to add one more point about the JCPOA and our negotiations. There's something else that needs to be added to those negotiations. Mm -hmm. And it should have been in the JCPOA. We have American prisoners in Iran. It's really... I think it was unconscionable to do the whole JCPOA and not liberate them. And I think it would be unconscionable to do another deal with Iran while Americans are unjustly detained in that country. They've got to be liberated before or as part of any deal.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things you mentioned, uh, which I think is right, is this idea that the, that the Iranian regime is not really representative of the views of its people, right? We saw that with the protests in the street. We saw what they have to do to crack down on their own people. You know, one of the challenges of U.S. policy is that we've largely imposed our policy through sanctions that have – we've tried to have an effect on the regime, but the reality is it has an effect on the larger economy. It's part of our uh, ability to have maximum pressure – is there any possibility, or is there is there a road that Congress, the administration, the next administration should go down in terms of a more proactive policy aimed at the Iranian people, uh, who, by all accounts, are, are more favorably disposed to us uh, than their than their regime?
0: Yeah, I think first of all that that there are there is some poll data suggesting that Iranians, you know, Iranians are pretty smart and they know what the problem is, and the problem is the regime. They know that. Right. Um, if there were ever A free election. In Iran, that would be the end of this Islamist regime. Um, We try very hard not to have that impact on the Iranian people. And, you know, U.S. sanctions in Iran, but also everywhere, never cover uh, humanitarian goods, uh, medicine, uh, medical equipment, food. Um, So uh, we make a real effort. Treasury makes a real effort. It's absolutely certain that that Will continue in the next administration. I'm sure the next Treasury Department will be equally um, in OFAC, will be equally determined to try to prevent it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's an easy way to do this, which is the Iranian regime has got to make concessions because what happens if you give them money is what do they spend it on? You know what they spend it on the Revolutionary Guards, the Quds Force, Hezbollah. Look in um, May, I believe I have the month right. Um, the government of Iran announced that they were going to move a billion dollars to the Ministry of Health. Why? Because of COVID, of course. In September, the Minister of Health said publicly, "I never got the billion dollars," and he said, "But I need it because what could be more important than fighting COVID?" Well, you know, to the to the Supreme Leader and and the guys running the regime, we know it could be more important to them, supporting Hezbollah and Hamas and Shia militias in Iraq and having a missile program. I mean, that's what's more important. And that is the problem with giving them the kind of cash that was done in the JCPOA.
1: Right. What about the UN arms embargo, right? I mean, this seems like just crazy town, right? I mean, nobody in the global community thinks that the Iranians should be getting more weapons, right? That's not, nobody thinks that. And yet when the US put put the security council to the test, Right, I believe we had one or maybe two countries to support us. I think it was Dominican Republic, if I remember correctly. The rest of our a- allies, right, uh, essentially abstained, right. And as a result, now, as I understand it, and maybe this is maybe this is wrong, but as I understand it, as of October, no more arms embargo. What? What? What's the story? What do we yeah, do? You know, our
0: our position is that we have snapped back right uh, those sanctions, and and if there is arms trade, we'll sanction it. Um, we'll sanction.
1: European, European countries. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, if there's a, if there's a, well, now the EU has an arms embargo that continues until 2023, but if there were a company, let's say in Asia um, that sold arms to Iran, we would instantly sanction okay. uh, that company um, or the bank that financed it, for example. Yeah. Um, look, uh, everybody says exactly what you said. I mean, if you talk to the Europeans. They'll say, well, why is why does the EU have an arms embargo? Because we agree that there should not be conventional arms sales to Iran. Of course, again, 2023 is one of those numbers that's got to be extended. Way too soon, why yeah. didn't they go along with us? You know, if you look at the statements they made, they said we agree that nobody should sell conventional arms to Iran or buy them from Iran, but they valued the JCPOA over that, and uh, you know. We didn't. We said in the end, um, uh, the JCPOA can be renegotiated and it should be, but allowing, uh, you know, for example, allowing Iran to buy advanced combat jets—it's nuts,
1: totally crazy. So um, I do want to talk about Venezuela, since uh, that actually was your original portfolio when you came to the State Department. And yeah. There is actually, there actually, as we as we've all learned um, in 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 the recent months and, and year, and in particularly the last few weeks that there is this relationship between Venezuela and Iran. Um, A few weeks ago, we seized, you know, a a million-plus barrels of Iranian oil headed for Venezuela. Was that effort more about Venezuela or Iran or both? Both. Both. I mean, it's, you know, the the sort of
0: pariah combination. Um, They were – it was uh, bringing gasoline from Iran uh, to Venezuela, and we seized it. I should be – A lot of the press reports have been inaccurate in suggesting this was something the U.S. Navy did. It wasn't. It wasn't physical. It was judicial. It was done by court orders. Um, But there is a growing connection between Iran and Venezuela, and it's very worrisome, uh, because you always have the worry that Iran, which has conducted terrorist attacks in South America, might try to use Venezuela as some kind of terrorist base. they're already helping uh, the, the regime there in various ways. Uh, so uh, we, tr- we are trying to use the power of U.S. sanctions. What we have been able to do is really to knock out of that trade anybody uh, pretty much but Iran in the sense that there's no Greek, Greek shipowner, for example. There's no Liberian ship, uh, Liberian flagship. It's going to engage in that trade because they're afraid of the sanctions. Iranian ships engage in that.
1: Yeah. Well, so but let's talk about this judicial seizure. So, so it wasn't an actual seizure. We have a court order, but there's still this Iranian ship, right, with oil on it headed towards Venezuela. How, how do we effectuate that, that court order that, that sees the oil? I mean, is that, is that a real thing, or is it just going to make its way to Venezuela? They don't care what we, what we say about it. You know, the well, don't, Iranians don't care.
0: Yeah, they don't care, but the ship owners do care. Th- these were not iranian flag ships. Ah, um, these were, if I recall correctly, Greek-flagged Greek, sh- Greek flagged ships. And they do care because, you know, if they go through with this, they could be subject to extremely tough U.S. penalties, like the ship will never be allowed in an American yeah. port, ever. Um, penalties on the ship owners, on the insurers, mm. uh, you know, on the captain, on the, on the crew. So right. uh, those ships actually turned yep. um, and went to the U.S., Uh, Where the cargo gasoline uh, was sold and I have to give credit to DOJ, which did something really neat This was a trade between uh, You know two pariah states We took that money about 40 million bucks and put it in the fund to compensate victims of terrorism It's great. It really was it was poetic justice and real
1: justice Yeah. So, so if that's how it plays out, and at this point, does that mean that no one's, no one else is is going to be shipping this stuff? Is that is that the theory that having no. now seen this happen one one time? I wish that were true. Yeah.
0: What you find, of course, is the Venezuelans uh, went. You might say they learned from Iran because we have sanctions on both. So how do they sell crude oil? Right. Through tricks, um, they. Uh, you know, a ship comes and picks it up and changes its name and turns off its transponder or they do ship to ship transfers so that the at sea, and then the ship claims to be, you know, Malaysian oil, Singaporean, uh, Iraqi. Um, and there is an element of whack-a-mole here. We are, you know, when you rename the ship, you go after the new name, um, treasury does this and they're very good at it. And, um, it's, it's hard though, because, you know, you go after a company, you shut it down. Well, you know, a week later, somebody has has incorporated a new company someplace. Um, but that's the name of the game. And we do that. And we know that it's very expensive for Venezuela because we know that they give, they are forced to give tremendous discounts, which means that the revenue the regime is getting is very significantly lower than it otherwise would get.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is a great point. So so now that we've sort of talked about how the Iranian-Venezuela relationship is going, I'm interested to talk specifically about Venezuela. So let's talk about uh, Nicolas Maduro, right? Is there, I mean, our policy has been, he's in office illegally, there's an elected president, there, well, there's a there's a pr- new president of, of Venezuela, uh, he should be allowed to take office. That's been our policy for the better part of whatever it is, two is, two two and and a half years. Um, that hasn't played out right is there any realistic chance at this point that nicholas maduro leaves office other than at the po- at the barrel of a gun
0: i think so uh i mean i suppose that's a always a prospect too but um yes you know uh i think there are or a lot maybe of people... i should have asked
1: that question maybe i should have asked <laughs> if he's going to leave it. the no but it also say like, what, what what are the odds that in, in the near term right that we see sort of a, cha- a regime uh, a, a more a, more democr- a truly democratically elected regime in, in, in Venezuela? Well,
0: <laughs> um, it's a very tough situation. You know, I dealt in the Reagan years with um, the ways in which we helped Democrats in all of South America um, return their countries from military dictatorships to democracies. And it was always done through negotiation on one side of the table of the generals, On the other side are the leaders of democratic political parties. They make a deal, which by the way, always included some kind of amnesty for the generals. And the deals were done. And one after another, they returned. So why not Venezuela? I think the difference here is that Venezuela is not a military dictatorship. It is run by a criminal gang. They're involved in things like drug trafficking. So they are much more worried about leaving office because they know some of them are under indictment and they know that others of them will be someday if they ever leave office. That makes the negotiation a lot harder. I still think a negotiation uh, may be possible. I think, again, we've built up a lot of leverage in Venezuela too. Um, And there is talk among Venezuelans, including in the opposition, uh, with the people we talked to in Europe the Norwegians and others, you know, what kind of a negotiation might be possible. It was right. tried before several times. The Vatican hosted one set. The Dominican Republic hosted a set. And then the Norwegians most recently. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because Maduro was willing to negotiate peripheral things. But his future was never on the table. And right. it's got to be. Because the critical thing It's the heart is, of the thing. Right. It's the core. A presidential, a free and fair presidential election is the core of it um, and that's what we've got to keep pushing for. Um, now is he willing to do that today? Uh, he has not been willing to negotiate that, but I think we've just got to keep the pressure on until the point comes at which he recognizes, and others in their system, in the ruling party, in the military, recognize that the time has come, uh, to rescue the country because the country's more important than Nicolas
1: Maduro. Yeah. So at what point, at what point do you think we get to the point where he's willing to negotiate his own future? I mean, the problem here, right, obviously, is we put as much pressure as we think we can. Maybe there's some more pressure we could put on. Um, I assume that we're thinking about that. Uh, what What is the thing that tips it over that gets him to the point where he realizes it's better to cut a deal, go live your life, you know, on some island in exile with a bunch of money and whatever it is you want, right? What, what gets him to that point? And what do you say to uh venezuela opposition leaders who say look we tried this thing it's not working you have to you the u.s if you want him out have got to find a way that he's got a good exit ramp and the chavistas are able to return to political life you can't run the what what they say is sort of the iraq you know debathification operation yeah. in venezuela it will fail
0: well on that point we've made that very clear i mean I'm, i've said that repeatedly in speeches that um we didn't pick Guaido as the interim president, and we're not trying to pick the next president. They need a free election. Could the ruling party, the Pesuv, win that election? Yeah. Or could win the second election? And I've said, both publicly uh, and in my first meetings, was January 2019, with their foreign minister, you know, you want to know the American way of doing this? Think about the FMLN in El Salvador and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. When they came in through free elections, you know what the United States did? We said, Congratulations, we gave them foreign aid. So uh, that that's that's what we do. And that could happen to you. Now, yeah, you'd probably be out of power for a while because you've lost up the country so incredibly badly. Right. But people come back. Now no, again, part of the problem with that argument is if you're a criminal, it it may not reverberate for you, but you know, I think you asked, what do we do? What, what has to be done? I think a criti- critical ingredient here, and it's true in Iran too, is to make it clear that there will be no freebies, to make it clear that there will be four more years of pressure unless a way forward is found that is acceptable to the people of the country and to the United States. Uh, we are not trying to keep the uh, Chavistas uh, out of power, You know, and I've said this many times before. I would never vote for them, but I don't vote in Venezuela. I don't get a voice in that. Um, The people of Venezuela are free to choose them as they were free to choose the FMLN or the Sandinistas. Uh, but But the people of Venezuela have to have a free choice. And I think it will matter if the incoming administration makes it clear that they're going to continue the pressure until the regime is willing to do a real negotiation that leads to a presidential election. Because if they look at that, not just they look at it, but all the people around Maduro who want to have a future, and again, the military, um, and say, well, wait a minute, we don't want to go through four more years of this, and there's a way out. And we've said that too, as I, as I just said to you before, every transition in Latin America, and for that matter, you know, think of South Africa, think of Eastern Europe, has included a form of amnesty.
1: Yeah. And
0: ultimately the one in Venezuela was true.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I wonder whether um, it, you know your instinct is, is right that, that that this is all about the free elections. If that's right, we have a parliamentary election coming up in three days, right? Maduro said it's gonna be a free and fair election, right? You don't, as I understand it, believe so, right? Who are we to believe, and uh, and if now is not the time to have free and fair elections, or this isn't one, how do you know under a Maduro regime, how are you going to know when it's really a free and fair election? Yeah. What's
0: well, on this one, you don't have to listen to the United States. You can listen to uh, just about every country in the EU. You can listen to Canada. You can listen to just about every democracy in Latin America. You know, there was an effort to get the EU to observe these elections, and the EU refused because it said this is obviously not going to be a free election and we're not gonna dignify it. So they wouldn't do it. Um, So it's clearly not a free election. We proposed what we call a framework for a democratic transition that said, you need a transitional government for whatever, six months, nine months, why? Because somebody has got to run a free election and we don't trust Nicolas Maduro. Mm -hmm. Um, that That is one of the key issues we think in a negotiation. This is a guy who, I mean, he'll promise to have a free election, but right. You know, if he's sitting in the presidential palace with full control of the police and full control of the army and full control of these, what are called colectivos, these uh, gangs, right? and full control, which he has today, of, of the elections commission. I mean, come on, full control of the media. That's not going to be a free election. That's the kind of thing that that a transitional government could change and then hold a free election.
1: Yeah. So I've got one last question for you before I turn to – I see there's already 15 questions in the question and answer box, so we'll yep. get to them a little earlier than usual. Um, if you had to take an, an estimate of uh, the incoming administration, are they more likely to be with you on – were you personally in the administration, frankly, as I know you are uh, on – are they more likely to be with you on Iran policy or Venezuela policy and why? Venezuela policy.
0: Venezuela you know, policy Yeah, of course. Uh, Venezuela policy has been remarkably bipartisan in the last four years. You know, when I go up and talk to um, the ranking Democrat on foreign relations, Senator Menendez, or even um, the the, um, number two leader, uh, Senator Durbin, uh, when I testify in front of, you know, the committee, Tim Kaine and Ben Cardin, they're pretty much, pretty much, I don't want to speak for them, but It's clear that there have not been vast partisan debates, Uh, a symbol, symbol. When Juan Guaido was invited to the State of the Union message and he stood up in the balcony, everybody rose and applauded, you know, and right behind the president was Nancy Pelosi doing it. So it's been a bipartisan policy and I don't expect very significant changes. Iran has not been a bipartisan policy. Uh, And that's one we're going to argue about.
1: Yeah. So I want to take some questions for the audience. So we'll start with Brianna Tucci, uh, one of our visiting fellows at NSI. Um, and she asks about uh, the Obama administration and its use of the National Security Council to generate and implement foreign policy uh, more than the State Department, right? that It was primarily an NSC-driven process uh, rather than a state-driven process. Um, and now, of course, we know that the former Secretary of State will have a seat at the table, climate change, admittedly, but you know who believes John Kerry's going to stay away from anything else? <laughs> um do you anticipate a similar uh, imbalance of power between the NSC and state and the Biden administration? What difference does it make that Anthony Blinken, who knows the NSC process really well and has been at state, will now be presumably the Secretary of State, and, and Jake Sullivan, who's been at policy planning, Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary Clinton, and then also uh, at, at the NSC. How does that, does that make a difference, um, and, mm-hmm. and what do you, how do you think this thing plays out?
0: Well, it'll be fun to watch. You know, I started at the State Department many years ago. And one of the things we've tried to do is to prevent the lunatics at the NSC from doing bad things. Then I was at the NSC. You became so one of the learned, lunatics at the NSC. Well, exactly. Trying right? to the fools at the State Department. Right. It was ever thus. Where you stand depends in good part on where you sit. Right. Um, and there'll be some of that. I do think, though, that um, it's critically, you know, the message comes from the top to the bureaucracy. Now, the NSC has, and this is probably unfortunate, Uh, become a bureaucracy. It grows and grows and grows. You know, once upon a time, it was 25 people, then it was 100 people, 200, 400, 500. Um, It's still a lot smaller than than state. Um, The message has to come down. Gee, the secretary and the national security advisor are friends. They get along great. They don't want to hear about stupid fights. They don't want to hear about turf arguments. They want to hear about Real policy arguments. Right. If that message comes down, it's very, very important. You see it even in the State Department, where I've had, you know, I deal with assistant secretaries in the regional bureaus, and occasionally people say to me, um, you know, people saying you had a big fight so and so. These are people I've known for decades. Um, in, in you know, the case of Dave Schenker and and Mike Kozak, right. we don't fight. So it's important that everybody gets gets the message yeah. um, and i think you know i hope that um jake solomon and tony blinken uh, both of whom i have a very high regard for you know fully understand that because as you just said they've been in uh, in these places and you know i would think that it's second nature to them to avoid that kind of turf fighting and when there is some turf fighting there's bound to be some people step on each other's toes you know it just takes a phone call uh to resolve it. Yeah. I now uh-huh. the, you, there's another question there which is, you know, yeah, should the president make foreign policy? Uh the answer in general is yes. I mean Of course. Uh, of course. Of course. The the Secretary of State is the key advisor. Um but it's right for foreign policy to come essentially from the president of the United States. I used to teach for came here to back to state at Georgetown, and I taught a course on um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the question always was, you know, how, how is policy in the Middle East made? It's simple. It's made by the president and the team around him, and that is the right way to make policy.
1: Right. So on this question of of who should make foreign policy, there's often this debate about whether Congress and how big a role Congress should have in foreign policy. As we know, during the Obama administration, uh, much like, frankly, every presidential administration, um, they sought to give uh, Congress a stiff arm and even tried to keep the JCPOA away from Congress altogether. Uh, We at least got a chance to see it. We voted on it. It was it lost by bipartisan majorities in both houses. Of course, we didn't have enough votes to get past the threshold in the Senate, but it is what it is. Megan Brown asks, um, what is the role of Congress in shaping these policies, Iran and Venezuela, and how will domestic politics either embolden or limit the Biden administration when it comes to uh, these issues?
0: What's the role of Congress? Um, how many hours do we have, you know? Right. Um, there are certain statutory roles that cannot be uh, forgotten or eliminated. One of them is confirmation. Right very important. Uh, and you're going to have hundreds, actually thousands, a few thousand people coming up. But let's just take the foreign policy, national security area. You're going to have dozens and dozens of people, all the assistant sectors, all the ambassadors, um, the people in the Pentagon. This is a real opportunity for uh, the Senate to exert power. A, B, the budget. You know, one of the ways that Congress can really cut things off, if it really wants to, uh, and sometimes, tragically, as in, I would argue in the case of Vietnam, Congress yeah. can just
1: say, "Not another dime." Um, that might be un- the one example, by the way. That might be the only example, right? To be fair,
0: it yes, but there's a lot. Besides of bargain- one that we
1: won't talk about,
0: no, but but there, there's a lot of bargaining that
1: goes on where there are threats, where right. there are yes.
0: reductions in the budget. Um, you know, ideally you aren't playing a game of, of threats and cutoffs. What you're doing is, uh, and, and I think we did this on Venezuela. It's very easy because it was a bipartisan yeah. policy. There's a lot of agreement, but you brief a lot. Your door is open. Uh, you you go up on the hill whenever you're invited on the hill. Uh, you ask for money. They give you money for these you know relevant uh, programs. Um, and you try to have a good debate, and I think you know, as I said before, we ought to bring in the Middle Eastern allies in a, in an Iran negotiation debate. Yeah. I mean, that debate should include Congress as well.
1: Yeah. I don't know, but it hasn't, the... but it hasn't been yeah. that way for a long time, right? It wasn't, you know, look, when we were in the Bush administration, we we didn't really care that much what Congress thought, and we played nicely if we had to. The Obama administration certainly did not care two wits about Congress, whether it was their party or not, when it came to foreign policy, at least. And this administration hasn't really. So yeah, I agree that's the ideal scenario. And, and maybe going back to, maybe as far back as Reagan, right? Maybe Bush, Bush won, right? But it hasn't been that way for a while. Well, part of the problem
0: is uh, the level of partisanship. Without, without blaming anyone, though I blame the Democrats, I'm a Republican, <laughs> but without blaming anyone, um, the level of partisanship clearly is much, much higher. When I, you know, when I came to Washington, I went, I worked for two Democrats, actually, uh, Scoop Jackson and Pat Moynihan. And there were tremendous fights over foreign policy and national security, but they didn't divide strictly on party lines. Now they pretty much do. And that's, uh, that's worse. That's unfortunate because it means every debate is really not a policy debate. It's infused with, hey man, which side are you on? Which party do you belong to? Right. Uh, so you, you don't get the debate. You should. I, I could also criticize, I think, the members themselves, some of whom are extremely uh, well-informed uh, and some of whom are not extremely well-informed. And the level of debate on the Hill could could probably yeah. be higher, too.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Dhabiš Alperovich on our, our advisory board and the former founder of CrowdStrike um, asks about uh, our track record on proliferation. He says, look, our track record on non-proliferation is a disaster, right? We failed to prevent, and I'm characterizing these words, but we failed to prevent North Korea, Pakistan, India from acquiring a weapon. South Africa built a weapon until we got it away from them under a tough sanction regime uh, post-apartheid. The only country that's really succeeded, right, uh, might be, you know, the only country that's succeeded at non-proliferation really is probably Israel. And they've done it by taking kinetic action, right? Egypt, Iraq, Syria. Um, and, And on a related question, Harold Moss asks, you know, look, you know, we've seen a ton of attacks on Iran nuclear scientists. They, it seems to embolden them, right? Uh, non-kinetic methods uh, have have had an impact, right? Which who's right here, right? Is it is it kinetic attacks that have the effect? Is it non-kinetic, if you can call Stuxnet non-kinetic, right, or whatever that alleged program was, um, or is it just that sanctions don't work as non-proliferation? As a well, I do
0: You know, I, I don't think I'd agree with the fundamental premise of the question. Um, The last country to join the nuclear club was North Korea, and that was and is disastrous. But if you go back over the decades, you know, you um, there aren't that many countries that have joined. And there have been lots of predictions that by the year 2000 or the year 2025, you'll see there'll be, you know, dozens of countries that it hasn't happened. It has not happened. Iran has not even joined the nuclear weapons club. So I think you can be critical of a number of administrations for failing to prevent North Korea. Um, But um, I would have argued that the track record is really not so bad. It's really pretty good in preventing people from uh, wanting to join that club. I mean, look what we're doing again with these one, two, three agreements in which we say, yes, nuclear power if you meet these conditions. And that's one of the reasons that the um, the, the, you know, at the beginning of the negotiation over the JCPOA, there was unanimity in the Security Council. That means China and Russia. No enrichment by Iran. And we threw that away. And that was tragic.
1: Yeah. And no ballistic missiles. And we threw that one away, too. Uh, so Norm Rill, uh, who was uh, the DNI's uh, uh, person on Iran, the, the National Intelligence Manager for Iran, during the Ir- Iran nuclear deal asks, um, uh, and who's an NSI fellow, um, uh, one thanks you for your service and your history taking on tough assignments, and asks uh, about the public debate on Iran, right? It's really moved from a national Iran policy uh, to JCPOA. And given that, mm-hmm. and given the partisanship largely around JCPOA, although there was bipartisan disapproval, L- uh, Norm asks, is, is a bipartisan policy even possible? And what does Congress say about whether there's a bipartisan path forward on Iran? You know, I think that's up to the next
0: administration. Um, If the position they take is uh, the critical thing, the only really critical thing is to go back to the JCPOA, which was such a wonderful agreement. They're not going to get bipartisan support. They're not going to get any Republican support. I would think if they say, look, um, five years have passed. We are not where we were. Certainly when we, Seven years have passed since we started negotiating the JCPOA. Um, So we need to do much more. We clearly need to stop their nuclear weapons program. But we also need, you know, I can make the speech. Then I think that there's a possibility of getting significant support. If they say, uh, look, there's a lot of leverage on Iran now, and we want to use it, and we want to talk to Congress because... The Iranians even say they want a binding agreement, right. which is what the Trump administration has said, too. Um, so let's talk about that with Congress. Let's talk about it with our Middle Eastern friends. I think there's a possibility for bipartisan support. But, you know, the question is, how, how, how do they want to do this?
1: Yeah. Do you
0: want yeah. to just jump back to the JCPOA, which is perfect and wonderful? You're not going to get that support.
1: And when you say a binding agreement, do you and do you think the Iranians mean a treaty approved by a two thirds majority of the Senate? That would be the best outcome. Is it likely? Is there any chance well, the new administration seems yeah, to uh, as a treaty? If
0: you know, my answer to that was yes. Um, a few months ago, I thought if the president wins the election yeah. and says, you're gonna have four more years of maximum pressure unless we do a deal, and the Iranian regime then confronted four more years of this, which I think they can't take, particularly today with a presidential election coming in June and with the with the Supreme Leader being old and not in perfect health, then I think we could have done, could have gotten an agreement. I think it's possible. And I go back to the issue. Are you going to use the leverage or are you going to just throw it away?
1: Yeah. Norm, had a follow-on question. What can you say, if anything, about reports of Iranian military cooperation with Venezuela?
0: Well, President uh, Maduro himself has said he wants and is looking forward to more Iranian military uh, cooperation with Venezuela. Um, It's reasonable to fear it. There is military cooperation with Russia and China and Cuba. Let's not exaggerate it. I mean, the number of, of Russian military is you know order of magnitude 150 people i mean we're not talking about a massive russian presence or chinese presence but they're there right and the iranians are there too and now uh, they will say there is no arms embargo anymore um so uh it's something we we worry about a lot and we should worry about a lot because you know this isn't going to help the people of venezuela to spend money on that and it's going to threaten all of their neighbors. I've made one uh, very concrete statement about this. We will not accept, we will not tolerate the placement in Venezuela of Iranian missiles that can reach the United States. We will not accept it. And if they try to do it, at least in this administration, we will try to interdict it. And if they arrive in Venezuela, they will be dealt with in Venezuela. It is not acceptable to have Iranian missiles in Venezuela, that can reach the United States. And I hope the next administration takes the same viewpoint.
1: I mean, I, am I hearing you to suggest that we may be on the verge of a potential Cuban missile-style crisis uh, with Iranian, uh, not nuclear-tipped, at least at least not yet, uh, missiles sitting in Venezuela, just, just no, in our own hemisphere?
0: Because I think, not, not if you say what I just said. Yeah. And you mean it, and we do mean it, and I hope the next administration means it. We're not going to tolerate it. And uh, I think that making that statement flatly and clearly will serve as an adequate deterrent and we will never face that.
1: Yeah. So, Sean Naylor uh, from Yahoo News uh, asks, um, to what extent do the various steps the, the Trump administration is taking uh, with respect to Iran and its final weeks, so the stuff you all are implementing now, um, is this an attempt to box in uh, the incoming Biden administration?
0: You know, I think that's a completely wrong way to read it. We've had this program for several years now, at least since we got out of the JCPOA. So first of all, this is our policy. And you have one president at a time. And the term is four years, three and a half years. So we will continue this policy until the end of the administration. What does this policy do to a subsequent administration? It gives them leverage. It gives them cards to play in a negotiation. So I don't understand the idea that we're boxing them in. It's an advantage to them.
1: I'm not sure they see it that way, uh, but I but ought I hear you.
0: They ought to. They'll never say it, but they ought to.
1: Right. Um, so uh, so Christopher Melling for BYU Law asks. Um, you know, he says, "Look, elections matter. Uh, the president does has a right have a right to, to, to determine his own foreign policy." Uh, is there a way to temper massive gear shifting from administration to administration sort of of the kind you know that some might argue uh, between the JcpoA and, and, uh, and the Obama administration and the the ultimate termination a year into the Trump administration of JcpoA uh, which she had telegraphed uh, on the campaign but uh, but but took him a year to implement? Uh, you
0: know it uh, very big switches in policy um, are. Uh, disruptive to our allies sometimes, um, but I'm not sure that I think, it, you know, if, if you favor the new policy, then I think whatever that policy is, then you'd say, go for it. You'd want the person you supported and you support it because of uh, he or she promised these policies uh, to go ahead and implement those policies. I think we do have to be thoughtful about our friends around the world. So for example, um, if we are going to weaken our policy on Iran, if we are gonna adopt a policy that provides them with billions and tens of billions of dollars, I think we need to have a long conversation with our with our allies in the Gulf and, and with Israel and with all the Sunni countries actually, because there are gonna be losers and they deserve at least to be heard carefully and to have their Security interests considered. Yeah.
1: So uh, Lily Coney asks about this uh, another aspect of this sort of push and pull on U.S. policy, um, and uh, and she argues that uh, the put the push and pull may be between nations uh, like those are part of the EU that want us to go back to our pre 2017 policy, um, and those who want us to keep the sort of more hands off, um, you know, uh, in certain areas, you know, post 2017 policy. Uh, should the Biden Harris administration look at this as an opportunity to completely reimagine uh, US policy for the new century? And if so, if they have that opportunity, is it, is it time for the so called pivot to Asia? This isn't her question, but mine. Is it time for the, the repivot or the rebalance, or whatever you want to call it, to Asia, given that the reality is our big time strategic competitor, everyone gets it, is China? Well, the country's doing that. I mean,
0: I think China policy is another area, huge area of nearly bipartisan policy. I didn't hear much dispute about that during the campaign. I think there's been a tremendous swing in the general view of Congress um, and, and even many people in the business community about um, the threat from China this century. who said the great strategic challenge of this century. That will have an impact on the Middle East as will uh, Growing energy independence have an impact. There's no question about that. On the other hand, um, the global energy market is still pretty well integrated, and on the security questions, you know, we learned the hard way that the growth of terrorist groups is a great danger to our country, and certainly an Iranian nuclear program combined with an Iranian missile program is a direct threat to the United States. Right. So. You know, it's easier to say that we should pivot to Asia than to do it, as President Obama, I think, uh, himself found out. So, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, uh, we we are, to some extent, all turning attention to the threat from China. But um, you can't just sort of look away and think that the Iran threat is going to take care of itself.
1: Yeah. So, on this question about, about Iran and, and, and China and the relationship, uh, Dmitry Alperovich, who, who again, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, is on our board, um, asks uh, Is there any hope of ever containing Iran without either getting Russia and or China on board, given that they have, n- and given the fact that you just have no interest and no reason really to help us when it comes to Iran?
0: Well, they do. I mean, in the sense that <clears throat> I don't think that Russia and China want Iran to have a nuclear weapon, I don't think they gain by Iran having a nuclear weapon and the arms race that would ensue if Iran ever got a nuclear weapon. So, I mean, you see this, for example, in June, at the June IAEA board meeting, there was a unanimous board resolution that was pretty tough on Iran and its its failures to comply with requests from the IAEA. Russia and China voted um, for it, as yeah. we did. So I don't know that that, you know, that we have completely adverse interests. Now, Can we ever contain Iran? Why hasn't Iran made a mad race for a nuclear weapon? Why not? Because they're being being contained. Hmm. Because, uh, first of all, they're being contained in the sense of revenues. But they also believe that if they ever tried that, either the IAEA, the UN Security Council, would act against them or Israel would react against them or the United States of America would react against them. So they must figure, well, you know, it's not worth it. We can't do it because they aren't doing it. They may, you know, I they've had a nuclear, a covert nuclear weapons program basically forever. And right. I think the Israeli, <clears throat> the, the archive the Israelis got proves that they never got rid of it. You know, we know what a country looks like when it really wants nothing to do with nuclear weapons. Right. We saw it, for example, in South Africa. Yeah. We and Libya. Brazil, Brazil, Argentina, Libya. We know what it looks like. That's not what Iran looks like. Yeah. Iran is a country that is trying to preserve the option of a nuclear weapon. Um, yeah. But they haven't built one. And the reason they haven't built one is, I would say, deterrence or containment. So we
1: need to we need to maintain it. Interesting. Interesting. Couldn't one theory be that they just don't have the ability yet to build it, that they've got the enrichment capability, they've got delivery vehicles, but they don't have a valve weapons design?
0: I think it is correct. But after 2003, they slowed down. That was a secret archive. Mm. Um, And the speed at which they were trying to do this changed. Now, one of the criticisms made of the JCPOA is that you're right. They needed to do a lot of experimentation over 10 years they needed to move to the point where they could have very advanced centrifuges and the JCPOA right. allowed criticism was the path to do that. It wasn't a barrier to doing it. And I, I share that I share that criticism.
1: Yeah,
0: But um, there is still time to prevent this. They don't have a nuclear weapon. They're not months away from a nuclear weapon, a deliverable nuclear weapon. Yeah. So uh, we need uh, ourselves and, and by the way, I think it, it would be very important <clears throat> that a President Biden would say the same thing that all of his predecessors, going back about five, said, which is, Iran will never get a nuclear weapon. We will prevent it. We will not permit it. I think it's critical that that's repeated.
1: Yeah. One last question from William Thuer, who asks, uh, in the last 40 days before the administration is in place, uh, is there any messaging they should be doing, uh, particularly sort of unofficial communications? How Obviously, they were very critical of the, this administration coming in and talking to the Russians ahead of time and sort of what they should do. We know that they're, the president is taking congratulatory phone calls. They're having some conversations about policy, climate change at a minimum. How is that for an incoming administration? Is, is that something they should be doing?
0: Boy, I am really torn on that question. <clears throat> Um, I I have a lot of messages I'd like them to send, you know, that would be very helpful. Right. But I think it's a mistake. Pardon me. Fundamentally, I think it's a mistake. Again, one president at a time, one government at a time. Very dangerous for foreign governments to be hearing disparate messages. Um, And while um, we have heard about Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, there, there is no Biden administration. It doesn't exist. So I, I think we should, every four or eight years, stick to the idea, one government at a time, you get
1: your turn, wait until you take the oath. Right. Well, Elliot, thank you so much for being with us. What an awesome conversation. Uh, and for the audience, we will end at the top of the hour, but just remember, we've got two great events coming up in the near future. Uh, next Monday at noon, we have a conversation with Ambassador David Sheffer, the State Department's first ambassador at large for war crimes issues. He'll be dis- discussing the ICC, uh, Will be joined by Dr. Louise Shelley from the tra- tran- Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center here at GMU, and moderator Ellen Lapson, director of the Center for Security Policy, also at JMU. Second, on Wednesday, December 9th, from 11 to 12 Eastern, hosting the next event in our Countering China's Rise series uh, with Kylie Atwood, uh, the National Security Correspondent from CNN, Ryan Haas, the former National Security Council Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and Ambassador Kurt Tong, who served as the U.S. Ambassador uh, to, a- to Asia Pacific uh, Economic Cooperation. So, Thank you again, Elliot. Really appreciate it. Folks, don't forget to look at our law and policy papers on our on our webpage. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, check out our awesome podcast, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, NSI Live. Elliot, awesome having the conversation. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Good night, everybody.